Welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation Volume 9. My name is Jackie Steele, and I'm a longtime Canadian political scientist living and working in Japan and also the CEO and founder of Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. And uh, I'm so excited to, uh, today we're going to be talking with uh, someone who I've had the pleasure of knowing for over four, four or five years now. And um, we're going to certainly talk through and thought partner why we think uh, diversity rocks innovation. And um, certainly for those who are joining for the first time, uh, Enjoy is a Japan-based global facing business working in English and Japanese and sometimes in French. And we're really committed to bringing uh, evidence-based diversity, equity, and innovation training and education for leaders and for corporations that really want to learn a little bit more about how we can mobilize intersectional diversity, think about accessibility, think about emotionally intelligent leadership, and of course, build corporate policy ecosystems and corporate cultures that empower individuals and that notably unleash innovation. But not just any kind of innovation. We're really interested in a kind of innovation that's inclusive, that is going to amplify de democratic equality for all, and that really will power our people systems for personal and for collective good. So in the live stream, one of our goals is to thought partner out loud. And this is a practice that I learned from a leadership coach. And um, it stuck with me as such an important part of lifelong learning to basically exchange with others to hear their worldviews, their insights, their expertise, and to just thought partner in solidarity um, in kind of a reciprocal giving of ourselves um, that allows us to appreciate differences that other people bring to the table, different worldviews, um, and how we can mobilize all of those strengths and diverse ideas and perspectives to really move the dial on inclusion and innovation, not only in Japan, but across Asia Pacific. So each week I uh, invite and I feature one of the Enjoy Diversity and Innovation thought partners in the network. And we thought partner out loud as humans with no business cards, no hierarchies, no worrying about, you know, are you a senpai, are you a kohai, who's older, who's younger? You know, we don't care. This is really about showing up with our radical individuality together and appreciating all we have to offer just as human beings. And uh, in this collegial exchange, we'll thought partner out, out loud uh, for the benefit of sharing these conversations and these insights and the wisdom that can come from these thought partnering out loud with the world. So I am so pleased uh, to welcome Tia Haygood, who I met, oh goodness, right? Uh, basically through Few Japan. Welcome, yeah. Tia. Hi. Um, right, you were already on the, the board of directors of uh, Few Japan. And for those who may not be familiar, Few Japan stands for For Empowering Women. It's an organization that is uh, working in service uh, of uh, diverse women across Japan and, and uh, who are looking for a global minded uh, English speaking community to uh, really feel, I think, normal uh, in Japan and to sort of come together where diversity is normal. Gender equality is a given um, and all the women show up really as they are and can be appreciated for who they are. So that's how we met, right? You were on that's the board. How we met. Yeah, that's <laughs> and uh, I remember joining uh, at the time uh, to join as programs uh, director, co-director, and you were already in the role for about a year and a half, I think, prior to mm -hmm. me um, as that's the right. um was called was it called strategic partnerships at that time or oh, it was so community I, service it was community service was yeah community but I was a strategic service. partner before oh, right, you were a strategic <laughs> partner that's true that's true you were in two hats yes 
So welcome to Diversity Rocks Innovation. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Very much. I've been uh, going back and forth on on social media. I wonder what we're going to talk about. What should we we focus on? So many things that we can dive into. Um, And I guess we only have a short, you know, 55 minutes and and, and there's so many things I I want to cover, but maybe we can start out with a bit of your backstory. I know that there's there's the Japan journey, which we'll get to. Um, But before we tackle the Japan journey, could you maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what are the core pieces or identities or experiences you've had growing up and that sort of make you who you are and helps gives us a sense of um, why you're doing what you're doing today in Japan? Oh, wow. Um, And I'm supposed to keep that short. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, (laughs) you know, we'll just keep pulling threads. So we'll, we'll, we'll be fine. Take your time. Okay. Um, well, uh, uh, hello everyone. Um, I'm Tia Haygood. Uh, I am a Tokyo-based photographer. Uh, I focus on branding, headshots, and family photography. And my journey from youth to this point uh, was quite colorful, uh, to say the least. Um, my my I grew up in, or my background is uh, Belizean. That's Caribbean and uh, African American, and we had a pretty blended household culturally. Um, my mom is from New York, my dad's from the South. And so there was just this, just within a black family, there was already a diverse kind of um, surrounding uh, where I grew up. And, um, you know, growing in, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood, but I went to a predominantly white school. So it was just very easy for me to see people of different walks of life, different socioeconomic status. Um, And again, just my mom being who she was, she wanted us to get out and see and meet everyone. So we met all sorts of people in her inner circles and and as well as my father's as well. So diversity was just something we grew up with. Um, You know, being in my neighborhood, I just always had this passion to leave (laughs) Uh, because it was just so monotone. It was so single note. I wanted to get out and explore, you know, people's countries, people's environments. And uh, it was just always a passion of mine to just just be around things that were different to me um, and, 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 and just be amongst that. Uh, but of course, you know, when you're in different environments, sometimes those monotone environments kind of clash. Um, sometimes they're not ideal to, you know, for your own personal growth, for your own uh, sense of worth, sense of being. And uh, it was really hard, you know, trying to jump from different environment to environment and trying to find the one that fits, trying to find the one that produces uh, a good environment for you to grow. Um, sometimes it's good for other people, but it's not good for certain people. And yes, I am kind of dancing around the topic of race and dancing around the topic of, of gender, <laughs> um, yeah, but but it is, you know, it was a right. reality. Um, yeah. You know, I'm, from the states and racial politics and racial cultures uh, is mm. a thing in certain areas, um, and uh, and it was really hard. It was really difficult. I didn't really understand the the I didn't understand race until I hmm, I think it was in high school when people started to kind of vocalize their expectations oh. or kind okay. of their low expectations of you know me being in an international baccalaureate class or me aiming for a particular university for when I graduated. 
And then it really came to the forefront when I was in mm. college, when certain situations would happen and then certain conversations stem from it. And it was really hard kind of navigating these conversations when you're trying to both educate somebody of a particular point of view, but at the same time, understand, hey, I get your point of view, but please understand this is this is the reality for people who are like me. And those battles can be very, very difficult. And sometimes people don't even want to deal with those, you know, that that conversation. And you realize how much people in a majority shape you as a person, especially when you're not a person of that majority. And it really it was really, really tough. Um, And it got to the point where I decided um, at this point, I'd come to Japan. I'd traveled to Japan before. Uh, I'd studied abroad twice, uh, once at Aoyama Gakuin and the second at Kanda University. So I, it was kind of like my outlet. Uh, Japan culturally and Japan itself was just an outlet for me. It was just the third wheel that I didn't have to worry about, you know, man versus woman, black versus white, you know. Poor so exotically different <laughs> that you can find an escapism limbo, maybe, that's kind of like, okay, all bets are off. All sort yes. of common common understandings are kind of maybe differently off, and then and we sort of over exaggerate the the differences of Japan in many ways. But I think until you really settle here for a long time, it does feel like such a very different place from well, Canada for me or the United States for you. Mm. Um, and the longer you live here, the longer you see all the commonalities that then actually do come across, and all the different diversity of individuals in Japan who Mm -hmm. are, you know, super individualistic or super collectivist and (laughs) the range all in between for 120 million people, of course, there's a huge range of that individuality, even in Japan. But Mm. how, I mean, you mention, and I think it's interesting to think about, and I mean, as a political scientist, we're always studying majority minority politics because, Mm. you know, everything in our electoral systems are structured around the majority you need a majority to get the vote through. You need a majority to win the election outcome. You need that sort of majority plus one. But there's also the sociological majority demographics of a population separate from the political outcomes that is just demographics. And that demographic majority minority politics across race or gender or or, or, or whatever, or you know, heterosexual versus uh, those who don't maybe identify as, as heterosexual mm-hmm. and would identify as queer, those majority minority demographics that mm-hmm. set the informal culture mm-hmm. and the informal worldview that is taken for granted as truth. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when that's not your reality and when that's not your truth and you're permanently in that minority position, right? And then like you say, when their truth doesn't actually account adequately for your experience or understand you adequately, but is imposed on you mm-hmm. from or all sides. <laughs> it, it can be very kind of suffocating, right? To, to then be able to say, and I, I mean, one of the Canadian political philosophers who I fell in love with in my undergraduate was Charles Taylor, because he, he taught, he wrote this, you know, very famous book that is called um, uh, Justice, I think, Justice and the Politics of Recognition. And, and he really talks about cultural recognition or, you know, diversity, the recognition of, of diverse identity, and then the non-recognition of others. So how do, and how do you misrecognize others, constantly misrecognizing them so that they feel unseen? Mm-hmm. 
And that majority minority dynamic kind of leads to, oh, everybody thinks A and therefore A is the dominant informal norm. And so we see you as B and you're saying, no, I'm not B. <laughs> I'm not B. Why do you think I'm B? And, and then you're constantly having to say, I'm not B. <laughs> like, I'm, not, I'm actually like, you know, L and, and then having to explain that over. And it gets tiring, right? It, it does. It does. It's, I know a lot of times it tickles me, you know, you see on certain international spheres, I'm really tired of Japanese people asking me how long I'm going to be here and, and if I mm. can hold chopsticks and I you know I'm thinking <laughs> those are the, the, the those kind of questions and, and expectations that I constantly had to deflect in the United States in, right. I would rather have the can you hold the chopstick question like that right. that's 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 nothing to me compared to some of the other things True. that you have to immediately disprove right off the bat right yeah. away from you know hey my name is yeah. so yeah. And I and I think those, well, and really they're stereotypes, right? They're stereotypes that have been made from the majority perspective about the minority pers- the minority group, but it's it's like simplifying and reducing them down to this thing that the majority thinks they are because they're uninformed, frankly. <laughs> they haven't met enough, they haven't gotten out <laughs> enough to meet enough diverse people to their to then not stereotype. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> But it can, obviously, I mean, there's different degrees of what that then feels like constant microaggression, or is it just like innocent ignorance? Oh, you know, the assumption, and we, you know, we think about, in some ways, like you talked about in the United States, if it's the race politics, the black-white race politics, I mean, you come to Japan and it's the Japanese versus, you know, gaijin kind of race politics or, mm. or dichotomy, right? And we're always stuck in these dichotomies of, are you A or are you B? And you're like, well, there's actually 15,000 boxes. Could, could, <laughs> yeah. we, could we acknowledge that there's, or at least give me 15 boxes. Can we have at least 15 boxes that we could talk about at least, or I mean, nationality, how many countries are there? But it gets simplified to Nipponjin, right? Like Nihonjin and Gaijin. And you sort of think, well, really? Is life really that simple? Like, isn't it a little bit more complicated than that, right? And so then, you know, Japanese use chopsticks, ergo, the opposite of Japanese shouldn't use chopsticks. And you're sort of thinking, really? <laughs> Just, is that is that a logical assumption to make? But that tends to be the, the stereotype, right? That if you're, I guess, gaijin and not kanjiken, not from a kanjiken country or an Asian country, that therefore you might not have the capacity to hold chopsticks and use hmm. them in, in an eloquent way. And, and I think there's other, I mean ways in which we put people in boxes. So when you decided to come to Aoyama Gakuin, was it? Yeah. Um, was that kind of your safe space escape moment of freedom where the boxes, at least, even if they don't all disappear, you can trade the boxes in for something that feels a little bit more liberating? Yeah, you know, it's it in the in the intro video that you were playing, uh, it was talking about being celebrated for being unique mm-hmm. and, and different. Mm-hmm. And I kind of felt it wasn't like a it wasn't tokenism, um, but it was this opportunity where I could meet people in this new environment and these people could meet somebody who they've never met, you know, at all or of that group and and we just synergized so much. I made so many friends uh, at Aoyama Gakuin and we hung out and we, you know, asked each other questions and it, it, it the, the points of ignorance in terms of Q&A uh, didn't really bother me 
in the sense of points of yeah. ignorance of Q&A back in the States. Right. Like, I mean, and these are egregious examples, but I remember I, I love NASCAR. I'm from the South. Uh, <laughs> I'm a NASCAR <laughs> fan. Um, I love race cars. I, <laughs> I went to, I went to a NASCAR race and I remember one, you know, white lady, uh, about my age, I was 19 at the time. And she asked, do chicken, do, do black people get chicken pox? And I'm sitting here thinking like, you know, I really want to know what about us, uh, you know, gives us a vaccine against chicken pox. I don't know, maybe we're superpowers. <laughs> but, you know, some of the questions, again, egregious example. Um, but, uh, and then again, you know, the, the, the silliest thing I can think of when I was in Japan is like, hey, is your hair real? You know, can you use chopsticks? And I mean, they're, they're innocent questions within the context of, you know, they've never seen a person like me before yeah. in person. Uh, whereas you just kind of have that expectation in the States where we're a diverse nation. Uh, how we should, you, we should know internal, should. <laughs> our internal reality is a little bit better. <laughs> so I should point out context is a really key factor. So maybe there might be yeah. somebody might ask me the same question in the U.S. It, where it, it could kind of irk me, but it doesn't particularly irk me in Japan because cont right. contextually speaking, there's no one like me in. Well, they don't have a history of having, you know, tremendously large, you know, African-American populations in Japan that they've just decided to not like learn about. Right. Yeah, I mean, exactly. there is a, there is a, a history, like there is a sort of an effacement of American history that makes me, you know, as an educator, <laughs> political scientist wondering what are they teaching in the public schools in the United States that the white folks don't learn about the history of their own country and of the diversity of that country and of how to learn it, understand the, the violations of liberty that have happened. And then how do you make sure that we're making sure our generations are learning from those mistakes and not repeating so that we're not having to live again and again and, and, and again, dealing, of course, in 2000 and you know, 20 and 21 with, with, with the BLM movements having to, you know, to put again, these issues back on the spotlight. Mm. Why have they not been dealt with and solved at a very institutional, political, institutional, high, powerful, as well as mainstream throughout public education mm. is the question I want to be asking, mm. you know, um, that baffles the mind that there can be such a disconnect that the population wouldn't know itself. Cause I think you can't really, go out and sort of proselytize liberty if you don't even practice it genuinely at home within your own diverse population base and have that celebration of, of diversity for and, and diverse expressions of freedom mm -hmm. and diverse identities. It seems to me that project of, I think, the American dream is a project and it's exciting, but I think it needs to be more amply practiced mm. genuinely at home. I think it's also I, yeah. going back to diversity. I don't think there is a collaboration of different points of thinking and different people, educators who have uh, an interest in certain priorities. I mean, there's this whole like, you know, do we teach this part of science or not? Do we teach this part of history or not? Well, 
many historians, if there are enough historians who have different backgrounds and who have different focuses or genres, genres, uh, focuses and eras of, of history that they, they, they specialize mm. in, my sister's going to be so disappointed because she's a historian. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, come together and say, hey, what can we prioritize for teaching history in the, you know, American history to our students? And it just really isn't. Um, the way that it works, at least um, I can say this for an example, is is it, it's a capitalist system in the sense of whoever had whichever state has the biggest numbers, they'll mm. there's a production of textbooks based on the state with the biggest number. Mm. The state with the biggest number is good old Texas. So Texas, okay, uh, nine times out of ten, is is focused on uh, preserving America in a positive light, not so much talking about the the ugliness of American history mm. therefore they're going to they're going to prioritize or they have I should say have prioritized the higher points of American history and because that that those school districts in that state are so big mm. um, the publishing companies for those textbook produce based off of what Texas prioritizes wow. which is really detrimental and it really does you know you you for, you lose out on learning so much about America because it is such a rich uh history in its short time span or right well and you sort of think I mean there's a fine line and I and not to bring this too close to home here in Japan but certainly you know there's there's ongoing efforts to also diversify the curriculum in the public school education in Japan to be a little bit more cognizant mm-hmm. of different parts of Japanese history that have been sort of uh, not fully covered in detail and not fully taught mm-hmm. and particularly around colonization uh, you know of different uh, countries in Asia and then the diaspora communities that remain in Japan post-colonization that then live with similar underground racism and race politics that are not solved yet here. Um, but they aren't really talked about because it's not really taught in schools. And so there's an assumption that we've achieved, uh, you know, post-World War II uh, equality dreamland where there is no, there are no race politics. There are no gender politics. Everything is just the, con- the new constitution waves the magic wand and voila, we are all equal. Right. And, and that's not necessarily the dynamic. So if we can't have sort of more honest uh, conversations about mm. our histories, mm. uh, then how do we then bring those, those questions to light and deal with them in a very sort of honest and transparent way so we can move forward to really build a more inclusive context. I mean, you, I'm mean, going back to your, if I could go back to your, your high school experience where you, you mentioned, and maybe it was even before high school, but that you were, growing up in a predominantly black neighborhood, but that you went to a predominantly white school, was that again, around the, you know, class dynamics and race politics that the predominantly white school had better academic performance or better uh, offerings? Mm -hmm. And what are, what is the institutional level of racism that that expresses, right? I mean, ultimately that your choice is to really uproot to a different neighborhood to find the higher quality education opportunity, mm. um, whether, but then you'll help, that means inserting yourself into a majority minority dynamic. Yeah. To do um, that. So my mom was a teacher and she knew the schools that were the high performing schools. She knew the schools 
uh, with certain programs. She was a dance teacher, so she's going to teach at the school with the dance programs. Mm. Um, and she wanted us to go to the schools with the highest reading and writing test scores. So um, when I was in middle school, the, the school with the highest reading, writing, test, uh, reading, writing test scores uh, was two towns away. So we would literally wake up four in the morning, drive wow. to the bus stop. And then ride an hour bus trip to that school. And um, and this is before the choice plan. The choice plan, we couldn't do that anymore. But before the choice plan came in, uh, we could travel two towns to school. But uh, wow. I think choice plan came in at two, in 2003. Um, and so we were limited to the school in our neighborhood. So my mom had to take out a loan and get a house uh in the neighborhood of the school district, right. of the school that had the highest reading and math test scores for high schoolers um, when we graduated uh, junior high school. So um, that that was just, that was something that my mom was really, really adamant She on. was committed. She was committed. <laughs> this is waking us up in the early morning and, and then wow. buying a house in, in the area so we could go to school. Uh, my mom was really serious about education. <laughs> and that's so, fabulous, right? Honestly, how, how much, how important is that, that, and then the commitment and dedication to and and that you also you know went along with getting up at four in the morning um and, I mean, and when you're when um, you're 12 you don't have a choice you just get up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's good for you you get up right oh but wow and so then I think you know we've spoken in the past how in some ways you developed a knack for I think you called it code switching. Mm. Oh yeah. Yeah. And knowing <laughs> which way to speak when you're within your own home communities and which way to speak maybe differently when you're in the school community. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that, I mean, I think there are obviously multiple degrees of code switching that people do across class and education in mm. terms of how, right. If you feel like you're walking into certain, certain environments, um, there's a pressure, right. Mm. To, to sound educated, or there's a pressure to sound knowledgeable about certain <laughs> topics. Right. Um, but there's also just day to day, you know, what are the common expressions and the, what are the, the, the ways in which we speak the English language that mm-hmm. builds diversity into the way we're talking and within our communities and within different communities. How did that serve you or disserve you? <laughs> well, it served me uh, quite well because I didn't get bullied by people who thought I spoke in, you know, improper, but if there, there were moments where if I, if I, didn't time it right, or if I used the wrong code in the wrong neighbor in the wrong environment, um, you know, you get called out in both ends. So if I'm speaking yeah. very proper in the neighborhood, then then you know people ask, well, "Why are you speaking white?" And uh, yeah. if if I'm using a little bit too much slang in my you know science mm. class, <laughs> and people you know tend to call call me out you know in in, in that way. So it, I don't really do it at all anymore. Um, you know, I speak in the way that I, I want to speak and feel comfortable speaking. Um, of course, we live in a world or we live in, in, in a country where code switching is the norm and you have different uh, 
grammar tenses uh, for, yeah. for certain situations. So you have your kago when you're in a right. formal situation or your business and you have your casual, but then you have your honorific and humble form. So, I mean, the, the whole yeah. Japanese language is rooted in code switching. <laughs> it really, it really is. And, and sort of how did that map onto hierarchies of gender, of race, of age right deferential mm-hmm. for age but also status hierarchy depending on your what your business card says and um that's you know we don't often i mean the language politics and and looking at the politics of language is really fascinating because so much gets revealed mm-hmm. through that sort of different those different levels of code switching that mm-hmm. i think we're we're inevitably socialized into when I first came to Northern Nagano 22 odd years ago, I think it's 24 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, I was working at City Hall and I was the only foreigner, right? I was there to bring internationalization to the city as this, you know, big lofty goal for one, one little 22 year old <laughs> woman from Canada, <laughs> a big goal. Um, but I just remember thinking, um, wow, like I want to speak in a way that's performing and performative of equality mm-hmm. in terms of interpersonal relationships. How do I do that in the Japanese language <laughs> without being dismissed as, oh, it's because she's a gaijin and she doesn't really understand Keigo. Mm. And I was like, no, no, I just spent seven years learning Japanese, you know, and at McGill University, trust me, we did all the different forms, but I... <laughs> in principle, wanted to try and be in a workplace and not have to always be either raising everyone who's above me. Everyone's above me. I'm the bottom of the totem pole in that right city hall and the, the, the last hire. <laughs> so everyone is literally above. So I'm constantly in like, so, but I don't want to disrespect either by using the wrong tense form that isn't being as you know, using the kego as I sh- normally should be. And I also didn't want to be, you know, the deferential girl, the deferential feminine speak mm. that I, that you're taught that, you know, girls have to speak more politely. We have to enunciate. We need to make sure that we're raising the tone of our voice. There's all these nuances around performed femininity in Japanese, right? Yeah. And so I experimented for a while with just using a, you know, shtemurai maska, <laughs> kind of a, as flat neutral <laughs> oh, as I can possibly be, just to see what would happen. And this was maybe two years in, so they already knew me and they kind of knew I was weird and sort of a bit of a, you know, uh, very much into equality and, and um, those, those issues, right? Um, so they humored me, but there is a point at which being a shakaijin, being like an adult is to know when to code switch into Keigo and into which dynamics of spoken language in Japan. And it is a sign of you are a mature adult now. You know mm-hmm. how to do, this is a level of professionalism and also a level of education and a level of you're an, a mature mm-hmm. person fitting into your socialized roles. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to negotiate those towards more equality in the Japanese language, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that when you're, I mean, do you face this now? You've been in Japan, obviously, since 2012, I think I want oh, to say, 2011. 2011, yeah. 11. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can go there and just think about how you paid forward those code switching skills you had mm. and then tackled, you know, your integration into Japan. How did that um, build your 
insight because in some ways you already had these 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 insights into how the socialization might play out for you in this new culture and then how to navigate that. I mean, there are some real skills and survival skills that come of being minority, minority, you learn, you learn survival skills, right? You learn how to protect and self-defend so that you're not lambasted by the majority (laughs) in any context of majority, minority dynamics that you're in. Um, And it's a privileged position of, knowing both the minority position and knowing what the majority thinks that yeah. often the, ma- the majority doesn't have both insights often, right? Mm, the majority yeah. only is in this privileged. We are the world. Isn't our truth like universal? And they're <laughs> kind of right. They're kind of in their own little universalist bubble. And you sort of go, is not you know, but th- that's kind of this quintessential privilege is to not have to know how minority people feel and experience the world or to empathize with that. Mm. Whereas the minority side experiences you have to learn both and you have to understand how to navigate both for survival Mm, yeah so in japan what how did you get i mean obviously japan was kind of your safe escapism maybe is that what ultimately made you want to come back to then live and work yeah um i wanted to just come so first of all let me back up so i was i a long time ago i wanted to be a lawyer (laughs) And I yes. took the LSAT and I yes. applied to law schools and uh, that was, that was the, the goal, but I wasn't quite ready to, to, to get to that point. So I, me being in Japan for a year, two years was kind of like a gap, you know, oh. space of time. Right. So I could be again in the environment to build myself up, build my confidence up, uh, come here with a skill, um, solidify my Japanese. Like I really, really wanted to, uh, I, I was pursuing my career as an attorney, um, but I just didn't want to get into the weeds of it yet because all of my senpai who had gone to law school ahead of me, they're in tears, they're, you know, <laughs> neck deep in in reading and reports and assignments. And I said, look, I want to do it, but I don't want to do it now. So I'm going to do something mm. else for a bit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a typical, you know, why, but, you know, a typical life in Japan story, you come with the intention of being here temporarily. And then it just drags and drags and drags and drags and drags. So it's, it's still dragging. (laughs) Um, But um, the reason why I wanted to, that's, that's one of the, one reason, Um, but I learned Japanese in college. And so how tenses like Keigo and Sonkeigo, and, you know, this is different um, levels of, 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 conversation was presented to me was situational it was never um it was never really a sense of like you must do this or these are the consequences um Mm. there was no bucho that I had to practice this to until I came to Japan and the expectation was presented to me it's no longer textbook Japanese it's Mm. oh okay this bucho has some high expectations of me to use the right Japanese, you know, use teine, not, you know, casual Japanese. It's going to be teine all day, every day. Um, And it's going to be keigo to the uh, customers. Now, the beautiful thing is about working, because I started, my very first job in Japan was, uh, I worked in Meikaiwa. And Mm -hmm. I graciously got to avoid that kind of messy hierarchy of conversation because you're supposed to speak English as the English teacher. (laughs) <laughs> so I, I didn't that 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 the expectation wasn't too stressful mm-hmm. at that point um 
but it did start to become a thing when I w- became a photographer because yes. now I'm going, <gasps> now there's this, there's a Soto and Uchi component. And if you're Soto, you have to speak Kago. Right. Um, so if outsider, you're an outsider, I, yeah, you it's like the speak. customer. So Omote Nash hospitality towards the oh, yeah. person outside the, right, the, the company or the, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a thing. And, and, and Hold even, on. Peripheral, even peripheral people are looking and trying to observe how you interact. I remember like my very first year of, you know, Top Tia, I was photographing, um, um, I was building a folio for a model. Um, so he wanted to be a model and uh, a professional model and he needed a portfolio. So we're in the studio um, and uh, his girlfriend comes and his girlfriend is in marketing and she's looking at everything. She's looking at how I'm communicating with him. And she's just like, nope, nope, nope that's not good. And I'm, of course, I'm just like really hyperventilating here <laughs> trying to <laughs> photograph this guy. And she's, you know, really, you know, critiquing. And so she, uh, the, the boyfriend, when he gets his pictures, he was saying like, yeah, you know, I really had a fun time, but my girlfriend noticed that, you know, you didn't really talk to me in the way that was appropriate. Um, this is the, the hierarchy of, 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 of language. Um, and uh, she didn't mm-hmm. like the, the, she, she was, a, she was concerned, I should say, um, of the layout of the studio. Now, this isn't my studio. This is a rented space. So Shogun mm-hmm. eye on that point. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but it really, you know, it really put the fear of God in you as a service provider. <laughs> everything reflects on you. It doesn't matter if it's your fault. Everything is your fault, right? It's like... <laughs> this is, but, but, you know, it, that, that was my inch. That was my rough introduction to mm. Omotenashi and presenting Omotenashi to Japanese clients, whether they're westernized Japanese clients or not. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that really helped me really, you know, at least do just a refresher of how to speak with Keigo and how to speak with Tene before I meet with a Japanese yeah. client. And um, I mean, now uh, this year I photographed um, some really high level executives yeah. and, you know, you're in your mind, you're you're going through okay make sure your business card is ready make sure you treat make sure you do the meishi kokan you know like yeah. the way it's supposed to be done make sure you use you know tene and keigo but don't make it too fake sounding because if you use too much it sounds like you're being insincere right uh, all of these <laughs> things i mean down to where somebody is sitting you know make sure you sit near the door don't sit near the window <laughs> <laughs> so, so, many it's, rituals, it's right? ritual. so many rituals, so many rituals of code switching and hierarchy and relationality, right? The, the mm. high context relationship and relationality. Yeah. Of what hat are you wearing? And always being mindful of that hat is on. While that hat is on, I need to do X, Y, and Z. When I take off the hat, then I can talk in ABC. But <laughs> while I've got the hat on, I need to be in, you know, X, Y, Z. But you it's know, a lot to manage. Yeah, it, you know, it is. But to me, it, it, it became this fun thing that I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed showing, hey, even though I'm a foreigner, I'm here mm-hmm. in your space, respecting your space and your culture. Yeah. I understand your culture. Um, that though, jumping those hoops is a lot different than jumping code switching hoops back in the U.S. Because For now sure. the code switching hoops is the way you look, your hair. My grandmother, I remember this. She was furious 
um, that my mother let me get locks because she, you know, in her mind, locks is an unprofessional hairstyle. You mm. know, if you want to be taken seriously, you need straight, you know, hair that that's not a distraction in the office. So I mean, those, so much those, hair politics in the States. Oh man, don't even get me started with hair politics. In right. The like, and, and, and it goes back to this misrecognition when, I mean, your grandmother's generation would have been constantly had projected onto them this idea that a proper professional appearance is not your natural hair, how you would want to put it, uh, to make it, you know, look the way that you find convenient and professional from within your cultural difference or from within your preference individually, that there is a way to do it. And it has to basically match what white hair does, which (laughs) is ridiculous, right? I mean, in terms of like creating norms that are fundamentally only about one positioning and one racial sort of uh, demographic, Mm. but the majority has the power to impose that on you know, whole generations to say this is proper and that's not. And how do we move beyond that? So in in Japan, I think was what I hear when you talk about um, the mastering of the code switching in Japan is like a, it's almost like a fun challenge because it's disruptive of the stereotype and it's disruptive in an empowering way. To say it's kind of it's like a I don't want to trivialize this it's like it's like a game you know you can surprise them you you do and and it's it's an opportunity to impress you know whereas back in the states it the opportunity is to get through the door and to 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 prove disprove disprove the person. negative right yeah I mean, so much of so much of it is there's a whole bunch of derogatory assumptions that are imposed mm-hmm. on you or projected that aren't true to begin with that are mm-hmm. all othering strategies that denigrate right based on difference and then having to just say how do I come up to just can you see me as an equal because I'm actually not all of those things you're projecting onto me Mm. um and those projections aren't even accurate of you know most of the black community anyhow so can we (laughs) dispense with with basically those racisms Mm. I mean they're really just racial um sentiments that, that are, are stereotypes that other, that other and denigrate in a way that gives power to the majority white folk in a way that supports them having more advantage and more privilege as a chronic system. And mm. so how, you know, there, there's a complicity, right? In that. Yeah. Um, and not to, and not to let my experience uh, give Japan a pass because there are definitely some grievances that Japan has, but yes. one of the things, you know, in, for women is is like something as simple as asking a question uh people who genuinely have a question and if you're a minority uh oftentimes don't ask the question because then they're perceived as ignorant or they're perceived as inadequate and so you get a lot of people who should be encouraging conversations or should be um as to say uh overcoming something as simple as getting clear information because they want to disprove a certain stereotype or disprove a certain assumption. Um, So just normalizing, uh, being able to to, to be vocal, normalizing, being able to, 
ask a question, <laughs> even in a Japanese space. I, I think you know, we, it, it's fun for me as a foreigner to, to, to jump these hoops, but for somebody who is a native right. uh, to Japan, you know, the hoops might not be as enjoyable <laughs> as it is for me. Yeah. And I am well, those... American. I'm pretty privileged in that. Right. And in some ways there's uh, you know, you, there's an assumption that you get a pass as a foreigner because the assumption is that you couldn't possibly know, or why would you know? Or if you do know, then wow, aren't you amazing? And it's like a superpower if you do know how to fit in. Whereas I think, yeah, you're right. Japanese nationals just have this constant pressure of why don't you, you should know this. And if you don't know this, there's a problem. So you need to figure that out before you show up, because when you show up, you need to know what's going on. And of course it means there's this culture of not being able to ask questions or, raise different ideas or views or you know thinking through out loud and that's why the thought partnering out loud this is really to say we are going to get it out all on the table and talk it out and if there's things we need to work through then let's at least give the benefit of us learning from each other and everyone else can follow along and and listen passively in a safe space right they can listen from the safety of their homes and learn about these issues um safely without having to to be in the, in the, in the conversation directly. Mm. But I think, again, so much of how do we build in a society room for multiple norms to be normalized, multiple cultures to be normal so that we can not have these majority, everyone does it this way, group think. Mm. dominate the space, dominate the public space, dominate the private space, dominate the national politics or dominate the histories, Mm. right? We're trying to figure that out. So in your photography, I know that you've been building Tatia now for how many years and in your work, maybe you can tell us about how you bring your creative, you know, your creative voice. Uh, And certainly I've had the pleasure of collaborating with you as a photographer twice, (laughs) once for my, once for enjoy for my business. And then that was so fun just to be, you know, out on the streets of Sancha and taking all of these funky photos with you. And, and then of course, once uh, up here in Northern Nagano doing the whole Shichigo-san, you know, coming of age day for my, for my, my son uh, and his five-year-old, uh, you know, commemorative uh, outfits and kimonos and and how you engaged with us was so beautiful. So I certainly am so impressed about how you show up as a, as a photographer and make the customer or the, the client feel really empowered to bring their selves and their interests and their, what they want in those photos to shine. And you really carve out space for that, even when it's <laughs> children who are complicated. <laughs> I love you. I love your kids. They're hilarious. <laughs> I still have the drawings they uh, made for us. It's hanging up on my shelf. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that it's going through what we, you know, what I was saying earlier as somebody who's trying to build their, you know, her own self-esteem and self-worth in an environment that's not conducive uh, for that or to that, towards that, um, I want my sessions to be these mini environments where the person I'm photographing, all of their inhibitions of, they don't look the part, they can't do the part, they can't, you know, can't, 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 can't. I hear Mm. so many times, I'm not good at taking photos. 
this isn't something I normally do. This isn't something I want to do. And so just taking that energy and converting it into something that's fun, something that's empowering, something that they would want to do again, because taking a photo should not be the equivalent of going to the dentist. Yeah. (laughs) It should be something that people are really excited about getting ready to do. Um, And, and, and just going through what I went through um, growing up, trying to find that environment where I could grow, where I could thrive, uh, recreating that in one hour to five hour photo sessions uh, for people who, you know, maybe they're in a similar circumstance where their their self-worth isn't, you know, where it should be. Being supported. It's not being supported enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so Mm. from before the shoot to after the shoot, that's my job. My job is to make you get excited about being photographed, enjoy being photographed, and then look at the amazing work that that person did um, during the shoot. And a lot of times people say, oh, it's all you, you know, you, you're, you're a great photographer and oh, it's the camera. And I was like, no, it's, it, it is a, it's a collaboration it um, is. because, you know, I, I'm not you. So, <laughs> so some, somebody's in that photo. Um, is that me? It's, it's the person I, you know, in the photo who, who I photographed. But you're, you're really curating a space of psychological safety and where they, in some ways, encouraging them to really let out their individuality to be seen by the camera and by you to capture it. Right. And so I think you said to me, oh, you know, when we're doing the photos with your kids, I'll deal with the kids. So you just, you and Mitch just keep smiling and just worry about yourselves because if you're tense because they're the kids aren't smiling or looking how you think they're not listening or whatever, then it'll show on your faces. So I need you to just tune out and I'll, I'll deal with, right? And that's, <laughs> it's true that you're in some ways the insider outsider, right? You can see what the final product needs to be, but to get the other person to relax and just be in the moment and to feel feel that happiness and to feel the in, the joy of the moment, right? Um, you really have to encourage and cur- I want to say curate still. It's like, it's like a curated space um, where the individual can relax and just let their hair down and sort of go with the flow. I mean, and I think that's so exciting to hear you articulate that photography and a photography shoot, I just hear this very like, I don't know, this, this, um, this can, this dedication to creating the safe space and how you approach your photography for these photo shoots. Um, and that's exciting because I would have never thought how important that is for photographers to have this beyond, you know, the goal of the shoot. It's, it's also about building this rapport so the individual can feel that freedom to be themselves if they're, particularly if they're not feeling super happy with who they are or feeling a strong sense of self-worth. And I think it's interesting that you tie that back to your experiences of building Mm self-worth and then giving that, that's like your gift to your, to your clients who show up in your, in your care for the time of the shoot. That's exciting. And I certainly felt that (laughs) both times. I certainly (laughs) felt that sense of caregiving, right? Good, good, good. I'm, I'm, I'm so glad because like I said, mom's, 
moms are they're so selfless in the sense that they they want the photos of their kids and and they're focused on you know their 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 children and their family but oftentimes nobody's thinking of mom and so you know for me it's like no mom come in the photo no mom you sit and chill and be beautiful mm. and you know okay the kids are playing in the pond it's okay we'll we'll we'll, we'll reassess the damage we get this beautiful photo of you <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, you, you meet them at their, at their, for their needs too. Like, you know, when getting the, you know, Gaska, of course, uh, getting him to follow with the Simon Says. Oh yeah. (laughs) That was beautiful. Right. I mean, it's like, that is a game. And then he understands what we're doing. Okay. There's a game involved. Okay, fine. I can play the game. There's always a game Um, with kids. There's always a game. (laughs) uh, Yeah. And so, Maybe talk to me and give me a highlight, if you could, from your top Tia photography, a highlight of where in the last years, where you felt that you've come full circle, maybe around your sense of finding this self-worth is in your entrepreneurial journey in Japan, um, and then paying that forward in how you're building top Tia um, and how you want to show up as top Tia. Is there something that maybe you would want to share with us about that in particular, that journey that you've been on? Mm. Uh, well, you know, I, the first, the first point in Top Tia where I felt really inspired, not inspired, uh, I say invigorated, but I felt really confident uh, was I was doing a photo session. Actually, it was with Nicola Vogt. Oh man, oh. it was. Yeah. And awesome. we were both on the board. <laughs> And uh, we were doing some headshots uh, for her, her company, uh, for her. And um, we were photographing and I just showed her the back of the camera. And she just said this big, wow, that's me. <laughs> and, and that was the moment where I realized or where um. I kind of learned that people, how they see themselves you know, day in and day out and what versus when you see like how they see themselves in a, a really, really good photo that you help the person build that, you know, build themselves up to that point is very different. And, you know, I'm always thinking is how can I get this person, you know, I can direct you, I can pose you, I can move you and things right. like that. But how can I get this person, you know, 10 steps ahead of how they see each, you know themselves every day in the mirror? How can I get wow. that wow, you know, from the photo that we take? And so it just became a constant journey of like, okay, self, how do we boost this person's, you know, esteem, their, their, their self-value, their ability? Um, how can we create this session around really making this spectacular? Um, and, and it's been, I think that I took that photo two years ago, two, three years ago. And um, it's it's just been this constant like journey of like, how can I build this person's self-worth? How can I build this person's excitement? How can I build this person, just build this person so that they, you know, can't wait to, 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 to show somebody, hey, this is what I did last weekend with Tia. Um, or, hey, this is my new LinkedIn profile. I have, I'm super confident in myself and my business and my skills, uh, starting with the very first thing people see in the LinkedIn profile, which is the photo. <clears throat> so so it's yeah. like their joy. It's like you're unleashing their, their joy of life and their joy in themselves, maybe finally yeah. to come forward, right? And be seen, which is mm. so, so empowering and exciting. Mm. Oh, that's 
Amazing. And I, I do want to, um, I, 12.57, time just flies. I know there's so many things that I still wanted to have you talk about. Um, but I think I'm really grateful for all that you've shared. And, and certainly we're going to have to circle back at some point to why you didn't become a lawyer, but there'll be another conversation for another time. But I'm so grateful that you didn't <laughs> because I think what you're doing and the genius that you're bringing to the photography space here in, in Tokyo and in Japan, generally, and you're all over the place going up to Niigata and, and in serving in different communities and different spaces. Um, certainly, I think that is much needed in Japan. and. Um, Maybe I can share that, of course, uh, we're very, very pleased that Top Tia is now going to be the official photographer for Enjoy Diversity and Innovation. Yoo-hoo! So we're very excited about that. And um, uh, it just sort of builds, I think, on the existing collaborations we've already done uh, for, for Enjoy and also for my family. And, and I love everything that you've produced so far. And we're doing another collaboration around a special commemorative 311 video interview live partner, um, thought partnering uh, video that we're going to release in Golden Week. And of course, uh, Top Tia is a partner in that production, uh, which is really exciting too. Um, of course, you arrived just after the triple disaster and came to Japan in 2011. So thankfully, you didn't have to experience uh, it real time, but then also experience the post uh, the last 10 years in Japan, right? Um, so that's, I think, um, an important part of how we can commemorate this 311 a little bit together through this through this uh, this one special interview with uh, a former governor and a former woman governor of Japan uh, who will be featuring in in May. And I'm not going to say more. I'm going to keep the surprise. Um, and on that note, um, I would love to thank you for everything that you've shared today. Um, Got to have you back. <laughs> have to do another one to finish the next piece of conversation that we didn't get to but um thank you for all that you've shared today and uh, i think hopefully people watching and listening are getting a sense of who you are and certainly what kind of a, an engagement they can get when they're looking for amazing fun creative joyful photography experiences here in japan definitely i'm going to encourage everyone to uh to search up top tia uh, in the future thank you tia for joining us today thank you Imagine a world without prejudice, bullying, or fear. Imagine a world where our individuality is respected by all our peers. Inclusion and equity are more than words or just a ploy. They are workplaces rich with diversity, creating worlds we all enjoy. Imagine a better world where we all can live free and play where the spirit of teamwork and solidarity give hope and light the way. Good business isn't just profits or pushing for sales. Good business must strive to be just as it scales. Good business is planting a seed in a visionary trail to foster an environment where diverse abilities prevail. Let's build that new world in solidarity. Diversity rocks innovation. Let's build solutions for equality to bring hope and transformation. Let's honor co-creation, honor individuality, with a vision for togetherness beyond screens and virtual reality. All it takes is a little to change the world a lot. 
money comes and goes, but legacy isn't forgotten.